I wanted to live a different life. I saw the movies and, and music I listened to, and I didn't want to live what society had decided for me. You know, I went to school in middle school, even high school, my teachers told me I should be a plumber, which is nothing wrong with that. But why can't I be, you know, travel the world? Why can't I just start something different? And so I had to learn how to reform myself. I had to decide early on, like, I need to be a better person. You may have heard me share that the question guiding the work that I'm doing this year is who do you want to be in 2023? It was a question that was inspired by the book Atomic Habits. And today's guest first became curious about who he wanted to be when he was a teenager. I'm so excited to bring you yet another author who started just being on my bookshelf with a book that I was reading. And through the power of sharing content online, we were able to connect in real life. Even though we're from completely different industries, we had a shared interest in the power of design thinking practices. New York Times bestselling author Dave Eggers calls today's guest the monk of mocha. Historian, community organizer, and coffee innovator, today's guest Mokhtar Al-Khanshali envisions a world where industry empowers rather than exploits, uplifts rather than represses. Growing up between Brooklyn, San Francisco, and Yemen, Mokhtar comes from an ancient lineage of farmers that traces back to when the world's first coffee was cultivated in his home province over five centuries ago in Yemen. In 2013, Mokhtar began focusing on his family's roots as coffee farmers. Seeking to reverse Yemen's nearly lost art of coffee cultivation, he founded Port of Mocha. Combining his knowledge of specialty coffee production, progressive infrastructure strategy, and community organizing, Mukhtar has helped to reverse the declining quality of Yemeni coffee and reestablish it as one of the industry's most treasured origins. In 2017, his coffee was rated as the number one coffee in the world by the Coffee Review. His work has been profiled in GQ, Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and New York Times, among others. Mukhtar can be found amongst his coffee farmers in remote villages or speaking around the world on topics of social entrepreneurship, community development, and of course, coffee. But today, he is here with us on the Designing Schools podcast. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skills to be successful? You're listening to Designing Schools, and I'm your host, Dr. Saba Kidwai, educator, researcher, and storyteller. Join me each week for stories and strategies that bridge the gap between research and practice as together we explore how might we design schools. It's not every day that I have a guest on the show who encompasses elements of design thinking in both their personal and their professional lives. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. But one of the things that I love about design thinking is the bias towards optimism that it has in turning challenges into these how might we statements. And I feel like literally that is what you have done, not only in your personal life, but also in your professional life as well. And so what I want to do today is I want to start by reading an excerpt from your very first blog post that you just launched and having you share that segment that you shared on your Instagram. Do you remember? Do you want to pull it up? Sure. Uh, the see here. It was a really, By really, way, really beautiful statement. I just launched this like, this is my first blog post. I and I actually that. met you because of a blog post that you wrote. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about later is like, you know, again, just going back to that idea of the importance of having a professional online presence, sharing ideas and how that creates 
these connections. But I want you to read that excerpt from your blog because I thought it was so beautiful. And it was titled, The Shortest Distance Between Two People is a Cup of Coffee. And I just thought that in a world today where things are so divided, people are divided, thoughts are divided, like everybody's always divided over something. It just really, really, really resonated. So go for it. There's something about the taste, the heat, the ritual, and yes, the caffeine that in many ways allows us to let go of some of our less useful inhibitions, our prejudices, our past trauma, our emotional procrastination. And in place, we're left with curiosity, empathy, and focus. And I loved those three words. And those three words also reminded me so much of your story. And so I think let's start with curiosity. Like, tell me, how did you first become curious about coffee? I was always trying to figure out what my purpose in life was and path. And I don't know why, as a young child, those were the thoughts in my head. They're pretty big uh, questions to think about. But I, I wanted to figure out what am I going to do while I'm here? And so I was always a very curious person. Uh, just grown up. And I think when we're younger, we have really amazing ideas and visions. If you read The Alchemist, the idea of the personal legend. And so we grow up and we forget about that, or we're taught that we shouldn't have, we should be quote unquote realistic or do or take career paths that are quote unquote economically viable. And so as a young person, I thought I would be I should do something of uh, be useful to the world some way and do some kind of something around social impact. And I just forgot about coffee. I forgot about my, I had early on, I liked the idea of coffee from the history perspective that coffee um, changed the world when coffee houses were, came, were brought to Europe and, and spread. People came into these spaces and had a moment of stillness and spoke about art and life and politics. Um, and so Fast forward, I'm now in my early 20s, finishing school, college, looking at law school, thinking about student debt, thinking about like, what am I supposed to do in my life? The pressures of the world over my back, you know? And then I go into a coffee shop and I have this cup of coffee um, that was delicious. And I never had coffee that way. So I talked, spoke to the barista and asked the barista, what did you, how did you make the coffee taste like this? What kind of flavor did you put? And he's like, we didn't put anything. This is the way coffee is supposed to taste when you do it right. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, well, we have a direct relationship with these farmers in Ethiopia. We, we give them more money for better quality coffee. And for me, there was something that clicked there where I was like, wow, this is a great, delicious drink. There's a social impact component. And then it connects to my family's roots in coffee. And so that was where my, my curiosity kind of, my journey kind of started. No, that's really beautiful. And I know for you, you have this story in your book where you share the billboard that sparked kind of that connection for you between your identity as a Yemeni American. Tell us a little bit about that. I was working as a paralegal, going to school, and then on the weekends to make extra money, I worked as a front desk doorman at this really fancy high rise. Uh, the title they gave us was lobby ambassador. I guess they want us to me feel better about the job, but I was a doorman. <laughs> and so there was a statue of this, this, uh, Yemeni Arab monk who drank from coffee at the old Hills Brothers building, where now Mozilla is based there, the Warren Business School and Google's also, their offices in San Francisco are in this, this plaza. And so I saw the statue and growing up as a third culture kid, someone who, who has parents who immigrated here, who have a, rich culture, history, food, music, but also I'm a sneakerhead and I love hip hop and 
you know, I grew up reading Harry Potter books. Uh, and so I think it was hard to figure out what my identity was or is. Am I Yemeni or am I American? Am I neither? And so I kind of felt at the end that I am everything. I'm American. I'm also very Yemeni, but also I have my own kind of culture thing where I mix different things up. And I think it took me a long time to figure that out because society wants us to feel boxed and you have to pick. You only have like a few different options. You know, I mean, on the census, they don't even have Arab American and they have like Caucasian or Pacific Islander or Asian or other. And so I'm, I'm other. What am I supposed to do with my life? Mukhtar isn't alone in asking this question, but he is unique for pursuing the answer. Too many of us travel on the assembly line of school to college to career, only to discover the misalignment between our interests, values, and career. While we often say we have college and career readiness in schools, if you step back, you realize there actually isn't a dedicated space for this. The antiquated method of teaching math, English, science, history as a means of preparing for life after high school is leading so many young people down a path of debt and disillusionment. Prior to this interview, I was at an event that Mukhtar was hosting in Los Angeles for the launch of his new coffee. During the talk, he shared a quote that I think every young person needs to hear. I asked him to share where it came from here with us on the show. Anario Ahid, where you are is not who you are. I loved it. I thought that was so, so, so beautiful and so timely, I think, for just like so many people. I think a lot of people struggle with identity, you know, whether you're an immigrant, but not even an immigrant, even just like from a technology perspective, growing up in today's world in one way, going into systems and structures that are very, very outdated for a lot of people. I feel like that identity component conflicts so much now more beyond just like race and ethnicity. But one of the other things that I thought was really interesting, which is the design thinking piece that we initially connected on was when you initially saw this challenge of what you wanted to do with coffee and how you wanted to work with the farmers in Yemen, it's almost like you instinctively applied the design thinking process. You saw a challenge, you went over and explored and you kind of did that empathy work. You created like a model for what was possible. And I feel like you've just been like iterating ever since. So I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about the journey from where like you kind of started to like kind of where you are now. Definitely did not have this, this methodical, premeditated architect approach to this. It was kind of, I have this idea, this belief I want to, it was a vision I want to see in the world of Yemen and coffee. And I'm somehow going to make that happen. And what was that vision? I just, I wanted people to learn about my culture, our people through this beverage. And I, I want there to be really great Yemen coffee. And that, there was a, this ancient legacy of, of coffee from Yemen from the port of Mocha. Those who don't know, there's a city in Yemen called Mocha and this amazing rich history that is, it was at towards the, it was basically um, almost extinct. And so I wanted to revitalize this ancient trade and art of coffee making in Yemen without any business background, without any supply chain management structure or marketing or packaging or e-commerce or community engagement, none of that capital management. And so I, in the beginning, I did, you know, very noble and very American way of, of doing things, which is you fake it until you make it. And then eventually I had to learn how to, how to become a proper entrepreneur, how to read a balance sheet, how to have, you know, P&Ls and how to like really understand business. And now I understand design thinking in a very different way, especially with product development. I think there's always the people who look at the problem and the people who look at the solution. And sometimes we focus on the solution because we think we know the problem is. 
And so I think it's very important at that po- early point is to use data and scientific ways of, you know, whether it's focus groups or surveys to understand, is there really a problem here or am I just assuming something? Because if you don't, you'll end up building some, a solution for something that doesn't exist. And so when I went to Yemen, I did a SWOT analysis of, of Yemen and the issues there. So I had a rudimentary kind of like approach to design thinking. And I would just say, you know, there is benefit of going to an MBA. There is a benefit of hiring consultants. There is a benefit of doing, you know, this work. But one of my favorite quotes in business was, if you launch a product and there are not that many mistakes in it, you waited too long. So you're just going to just jump in there. And I just went without any knowledge of this. Because if I hadn't knew much of what was going on in Yemen politically and like just like the economics of this, there was no way I would have done this project. But kind of there's a moment where like ignorance is bliss. I appreciate the many elements of design thinking the Mukhtar highlights. Above all, the importance of empathy and how without it, we often build solutions sometimes for something that doesn't even exist. Schools have become dartboards in a sense, with something new being thrown their way every single day, oftentimes with little strategy behind who are we designing for. When we take a step back and begin with empathy, we create cultures of innovation where everyone is thriving instead of feeling overwhelmed by yet one more thing. Was there a solution that you saw going in? Was there something that you saw going in? Or what was that moment where maybe you had that dissonance where you were like, wow, this is what I thought, but this is what could be? No, I was listening to um, an interview with one of the founders of Google Photos. I'm forgetting his name now, an amazing speaker. And he says, our vision was or is a place where your memories, or your most cherished memories are stored. And so everything that they do has to go back to this vision. Everyone they hire has to go back to this vision. And so for me, my vision was always, how do I support Yemeni farmers and bring Yemen coffee to the world and have people learn about me through this, and coffee through this beverage? You know, can I do this? And so that was always the vision, the goal. And in the beginning, it was, you know, trying to figure out how to, can I buy coffee roasted from a roaster? There is no Yemeni coffee here you can buy. Can I buy from an importer? There's a few, but the coffee has no transparency. You don't know where it really is from. I go to the exporters in Yemen and they're all, I mean, there's an array of like characters of people who work in coffee and H1 is literally like, there's so much thievery and betrayal and backstabbing. It's just crazy in the supply chain. So you finally get to a poor farmer who is in this vicious cycle of debt to loan sharks because they give them money ahead of harvest. And so I realized I have to fix this system and I have to work directly with farmers. And that evolved into becoming, getting rid of the middle people and helping farmers access markets. That evolved into, well, I'm selling my coffee to roasters and some of them are doing an amazing job. But some of them aren't. How can I tell my story in a better way and control the experience of the end consumer? I can roast my own coffee. I can do, raise like, you know, a capital round from VC funding. I can do that, you know, and figure out how to tell my story that way. And then eventually, you know, and like today you came to a really important point in my journey, which is having my own farm in Yemen and, and launching my own farm, which was something I dreamed about for years. And so it's always trying to like, but all it comes back to that vision. Am I supporting the, my initial vision? And it's very sad, I think, when a lot of founders start companies and they don't really have a vision they, or a clear vision, or they think they have one, but they're just doing what their investors want. book, The Startup of You, authors Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, and venture capitalist Ben Kasnocha, make the case that in today's fiercely competitive economy, individuals should think of their careers like startups. 
Startups, they say, and the entrepreneurs who run them invest in themselves. They build their professional networks. They have creative confidence. They learn from failure and they take intelligent risks. While most fear uncertainty and volatility, those who are comfortable with ambiguity, who recognize their strengths and have a professional network, know how to make uncertainty work to their advantage. Having this entrepreneurial mindset doesn't mean that you have to start your own company. Instead, it means that you apply these mindsets to any career path you choose. This year, I partnered with two high schools, Santa Ana Unified and Mineola, and a middle school, San Antonio, to integrate a new career discovery course called Design Your Future, How to Figure Out What's Next. It's built on four competencies, self-awareness, goal setting, building a professional network, and showcasing your projects and experiences. I think we all wish we had had these skills when we were younger. If you're interested in learning more, I have a link for you in the show notes, or you can send me a message and we can discuss how to bring this experience to your students. Listening to Mokhtar, you might think that he comes from immense privilege. As he shares his story, you realize it's quite the contrary. I think it's so important for people to know a little bit about your background because when I sit here and I listen to you kind of share these like really ambitious dreams or just even use the words like VC funding and like all these different things that you're doing or having my own farm or traveling here and going here, it would almost sound like you came from a really privileged background where you would have mentors and you would have people who supported you in this journey. Did you have that? I went to school of life. (laughs) I really, uh, my dad's a bus driver. And before that, he was a camel herder in Yemen. I am the oldest of seven children. We lived in one bedroom apartment in Tenderloin, which is a very rough place in San Francisco. A lot of violence in my, my childhood, a lot of difficult things. A lot of my friends, you know, are, are not in great places. And sometimes I, I sit back and I think, how did I make it out of that in one piece? I was very lucky to have, I just had a very curious mind and I read a lot of books growing up and I didn't want my circumstances to define myself. I was really, I was very lucky when I was, I was really a troublemaker as a kid. My parents took me and when I was 12, like for boot camp. And I had the opportunity to, to live and spend time with my grandfather. I think that a lot of times our parents, there's a lot of friction because they're trying to figure things out. Our grandparents are a bit more removed and they see a bigger picture and we're their legacy. So it's really important to, if you have a grandparent to listen to them, they really teach you a lot about who you are. And so my, I had a lot of, a lot of important lessons I learned from my grandfather. And I was just, I wanted to live a different life. I saw the uh, movies and, and, and music I listened to, and I didn't want to live what society had decided for me. You know, I went to school in middle school, even high school, my teachers told me I should be a plumber, which is nothing wrong with that. But why can't I be, you know, travel the world? Why can't I just start something different? And so I, I had to learn how to reform myself. I had to decide early on, like, I need to be a better person. You know, I had to learn how to, you know, read books. I had to learn how to dress differently, speak differently. Like I used to be very ghetto, to be honest, like super ghetto. And there's a lot of good things that come out of that, actually. Like when you grow up in difficulties, you know how to deal with issues. You have grit and resilience. People in poor neighborhoods, the, the suicide rate is much lower than the affluent neighborhoods. And so I had a lot of things I, I learned in the quote unquote streets. And if you look at what happens in the business world, there are a lot of, there's a lot of gangsters in the business world, like cold blooded people that do things way worse than what you see or you hear about in the streets and some music. They just do it in, in different ways and they're the way they, their vernacular, vernacular, the way they a hostile takeover, a corporate takeover. 
board meetings that are like crazy um, chess moves are happening there. Their way the emails are worded, like, you know, it's just a lot of soft power, you can say, a lot of strategy. But um, I had to learn all these things. And I had a childhood where I learned certain lessons that taught me about life and how to overcome these difficulties later. And I'm just constantly trying to learn and read. And, 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 and I think it's a longer answer, but I think I appreciate for, you know, for saying these nice things about me. And I got very lucky. I would say I had, my parents were very patient with me. They went through a lot of, um, put them through a lot of, as we say, bullshit. <laughs> but yeah, that's how, how to answer that. Identity and the role it plays in our career pathway is another key theme Mukhtar raises. This topic is particularly significant for us from an equity lens. As James Clear shares in Entabic Habits, every belief we hold about ourselves is learned and conditioned through experience. I often wonder about the correlation between assessment practices and K-12 education and the imposter syndrome we experience as adults. In our early and most formative years, instead of having people amplify our strengths, we're inundated with all of our shortcomings through letters and numbers. If our identity is grounded in our shortcomings, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at public speaking, I'm not good at the never-ending list we use to create that story in our heads, then how can we create habits that allow us to become who we want to be and create the change that we need to reach those goals? Atomic Habits author James Clear himself shares in the book, that his high school and college instructors told him he was an average writer. Yet here he is, a best-selling author with over 10 million copies sold, making a monumental impact on the lives of many. As Mukhtar and I talk about how he developed confidence in his identity, he also shared a similar experience about his teachers in school. I'm actually learning a lot about myself in this interview, <laughs> uh, which means you're a great interviewer. I think you mentioned, you know, being X. Actually, when I was younger, one of my turning points was uh, I read a book by Alex Haley called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And up until that point, you know, I heard in school people would say things like follow your dreams, you know, work hard, you, uh, achieve certain things, but they weren't people I could look up to that had similar upbringings as I did or, or someone I can like imitate or emulate. And Malcolm X was the first person that I, I looked at like who, who grew up on the other side of the tracks and was able to reform himself and become one of the most eloquent, articulate people who spoke just to power, who who dressed so well, who was just the embodiment of like what a man should be, a man should be, or human being even. And so in college at that time, you know, I went through my Malcolm X phase. I literally was like obsessed with dressing a certain way. And you still kind of do actually. <laughs> I still, I try to because I did, it really helped. Thank you to make me blush and hard for a bow to blush. But I did. And, and just like listening to his speeches, 1964 Oxford speech, you know, how eloquent he was. And he came from like, well, he can, he can, he, he can go from prison to becoming that person. That uh, was really important to me. And then even in high school, I remember there was a point where I just got rid of my ghetto clothes and my, you know, and I started dressing up differently. And my friends started calling me Rupert, like the cartoon bear. That was like my Rupert phase. Because when I walked around in this like outfit, wearing a, you know, a turtleneck or wearing like a certain outfit, people didn't see me from where I came from. I walked in my J's, you know, Jordans or like my outfit I would wear, Morocco wear at that time. They would assume things about me and treat me differently. And I realized early on, like, wow, like how I dress and how I present myself will change how someone thinks. It shouldn't be that way. Really shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, people have these prejudices of you. And so I decided to change my appearance that way. And Clothes, fashion gave me a lot of confidence. It's something, it makes me feel more um, 
confident in who I am and I can express myself. I'll have my, you know, outfits, but I'll, but I'll have my certain things. And yeah, I think it helped me a lot to develop my own personal legend. And then eventually, if you keep adding to it, adding to it, you eventually become this person that you try to pretend you're not. Then you have other issues to worry about, like imposter syndrome and other things that, you know, you that comes with that later. So if you had advice for high school people, students or young people today, what are perhaps the top two things you would share? Whatever you do, you got to love it. You got to love it because you're going to go through like hurdles and issues. And it, why are you doing this? If you just want to make money, some people that's enough for them, but not for most. Like what is your personal legend? What do you want to do in your life? And then you can actually do it. I know it's hard. People say, you know, there are a lot of systematic uh, oppression that certain people go through, people of color go through. The numbers are horrible. One in three black men go to prison in their lifetime. It's just different, unfortunately. But it doesn't mean that it needs to define who you are. We don't need to have a victim mentality. We do have a lot of oppression, things that are horrible, but we have a lot of things in our culture that are beautiful, that are, make us resilient, make us, you know, vibrant and make us like, we have a lot of swag too. So I would say find something you really, really love to do and the money will come eventually. Even if it doesn't come, but you love what you do, that's more than, you know, I have so many of my friends who are making a lot of money now who just hate their lives and hate going to work every day. So my, my advice is do that and also fail fast. Do this for six months, try that for one year, do that for two years. Like, and then you're still like, keep changing and do different things, make those pivots. Worst thing is to be stuck with something. And then like 20 years later, you realize, you know, why did I just try something for like six months else? So that's my, my, my find something you love. And fail fast, those two. That is incredible. I have one more minute. If there was something about you, because I feel like very few people know about Yemen and I wish we had more time to kind of go into that and you're going to come back to be able to like dive more into that. But if there was something about Yemen that you wanted people to know, what would that be? Yemenis are some of the kindest, hardest, warmest, funniest people you'll ever meet. I have so many stories I'll share with you in the next interview. And they are just, they don't, I know Yemen is going through a difficult time. So are a lot of other countries. They don't want your sympathy or pity. They want your solidarity. And to understand that, it means that you know that your, your struggles can to their struggle and that, you know, they're, they're just like you. They're, they're break dancers. They're chess players. They read books. They love comics. They are into sci-fi. Like they're just the same. And so, uh, but they also have a rich, amazing history, a beautiful landscape and country that just take your breath away. Amazing poetry, unbelievable food. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things about Yemen. And we also have some of the best coffee in the world. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned in the last 10 years, it's that it's never too late to make that pivot. Next week, I celebrate my 40th birthday and the start of a new decade. In many ways, I feel like I'm starting all over again. And it's why I'm so inspired by this question of who do you want to be? In my 30s, I accomplished more than I thought I ever would. From exploring different careers as a teacher that took me from teaching high school history to working in higher education to ultimately going to the corporate world with Apple and Wix to closing out my 30s with the launch of my own company, Designing Schools, producing a documentary, traveling, and buying my first home, it was a monumental decade to say the least. When I reflect back on the one common thread throughout, it was the relationships that came from having a professional online presence and the opportunities that came from those relationships. 
Interviews like the one with Eric last week and the one today with Mukhtar are just a few examples of being able to meet and become friends with people who once were only a name on my bookshelf. Accelerated change and economic uncertainty can oftentimes bring opportunity if you are positioned to be ready for them. In 2023, one of the best ways to do this is to build leadership and social influence through a professional online presence. Not only will it open up career opportunities, but it allows you to stay at the forefront of existing and emerging trends, which is ultimately what allows for really great career transitions and also helps you be a lifelong learner. In 2023, I'm investing my time on LinkedIn. If you want to learn more, I have a video for you in the show notes on how you can build leadership and social influence with LinkedIn. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Designing Schools community. Leaving a review for the podcast helps others learn about the show, giving them the gift of knowledge and allowing this community to help create access and exposure to ideas and opportunities others may not even know exist.